you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm chapter 78. We're going through the book of Psalms uh, all summer long and hope that you are growing in the Word and the Word is growing in you. That's really the intent of Psalms. It's the hymnal of our faith, teaching us how to walk by faith and declare who God is. We've been learning a number of truths as we've started in this series. We've learned that God didn't call us just to read the Bible, but God has called us to meditate on His Word day and night. That it's not just reading words on a page, but it's allowing the living Word of God to live in us. We do that as we dwell in it, as we meditate on it day and night, all through the day. We also saw last Sunday that we are to pass on the truths in God's Word to the next generation. That we are commanded to not just know the Word and the Word be in us, but also to pass it on to our children and our grandchildren. How do we do that? What does it look like? Well, if you have Psalm 78, let's go back and review. Go to verse 1. Listen, my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will tell riddles of old, which I and we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. Asaph uh, had the blessing of not just being a believer, but growing up in a generation of faith. It was passed on to him from his father, from his father's father and his father's father's father. He had a godly legacy. And it wasn't just that he was aware of the God of his fathers, that God that had served his fathers and delivered his fathers and had blessed his fathers was now his own personal God. Frankly, in this service with our young people and children in this space, it's important that as you're being raised in a godly home, that you not just become familiar with the God of your home, but that he becomes the boss of your home, the boss of your life, that you know him in a personal way. Uh, many of our children right now are at Cross Timbers, and we're praying for them this week as they left this past uh, end of last week, and they'll go through Tuesday of this week. We're praying that they will come to understand who their God is and that it becomes personal for them. Verse 4, Asaph said, so in our generation, we will not conceal them from our children either, but we will tell the generation to come the praises of the Lord. We will talk about his power and his wondrous works that he has done. Asaph said, I'm blessed because my daddy and his granddaddy and his daddy told him and and I've come to know who God is, and I'm going to do the same for my children. And look at what he said they would do. Moms and dads, take some notes. Things that we should do on a daily basis, not just showing up for church on Sunday morning, but speaking these truths into our children's life. Number one, we need to declare the praises of the Lord. When we gather together in our homes, we should be talking about and giving praise to God for what he's still doing today. Make sure you take time. And as you're building your young families, make sure you're finding those times to reflect on who God is and just praise God for who he is in your life. Number two, he said, we'll also pass on to our children and talk about the power of God. Uh, we need to not just teach our children when God showed up powerfully for David against Goliath or when he tore down the walls of Jericho. But what about when God's power showed up in your life? What about taking some time to talk with your children about how you've experienced God's power in your personal story? And that comes through the works of the Lord. They praised the Lord, they spoke of the power of God, and they declared when God had been at work in their life. Verse 5, for he has established a testimony in Jacob. He's appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that we were to teach them to our children. In other words, God doesn't suggest it. God says, listen, it's important not only that you experience me, but that you pass that on in a real faith to your children. Verse 6, why? 
so that the generation to come would know, even the children yet to be born, and that they would arise and tell them to their children so they would put confidence in God. Today we're going to take a look at two realities. You either are anchored in a total confidence in who God is and what God does, or you're experiencing chaos in your life, in your community, and in your culture. Two opportunities. It's either confidence in God or chaos is the other response. Verse 9. There were those who should have had their confidence in God, but instead, like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. You have that choice. You can place your confidence in God and what he has designed and what he has declared, or you can have a rebellious response and you can go your own direction. A generation that did not prepare its heart, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The enemy wants to rob us of a confidence in God and instead get us to rebel and go in our own direction. He'll do everything to kill, steal, and destroy. And the way he does that is he brings chaos through rebellion. My challenge for you today is to let God's word speak to your heart, to penetrate to a point to where he draws you back to a confidence in who he is. But it's difficult. We live in a day and age of rebellion. Everything about our culture now is nothing but rebellion. Rebellion against authority at the classroom. Man, if you ever mess with a teacher when I was going to school, you would pay dearly. Today, it's almost as if that's the norm. you got to mess with the teacher, and nobody does anything about it. Rebellion in the classroom. Rebellion in our streets. Police officers, and I understand the challenges of uh, circumstances where there has been abuse of that authority and that power. But we now condemn all police, and there's rebellion even in our streets against our government, against police, against our own parents, against God's design for sexual morality, whether it's heterosexual sin or homosexual sin, a rebellion. We'll live it, and we'll do it how we want to do it. It's rebellion in the land, and it's just like the days of Asaph. Asaph was addressing his culture, and he was drawing them back to confidence in who God is. Take a look at verse 9. He then points to a rebellious generation and it's labeled the sons of Ephraim. Look at verse 9. For the sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows, yet they turned back on the day of battle. And when you read that verse, you may not get a lot there, but there's a lot that is taught in that verse. We find that there was a certain part of Israel's heritage that was passed on through Ephraim. And I want to show you this legacy. As he speaks here in the psalm, he talks about how they were archers equipped with bows. They were a mighty military force. They were designed to protect much of Israel and a certain part of Israel, and yet they had dropped the ball. They were not living in their blessing, but it actually responded in rebellion. Well, let me show you the importance of these sons of Ephraim. Uh, go, hold your place there in Psalm 78, but go to Genesis 48. Genesis 48 and verse 15. Let me tell you what you'll find in Genesis 48. What you're going to find is going way back into Israel's history. They now have been in Egypt for 400 years. They're slaves to Pharaoh. And in that, we find that before they became slaves, it actually was a time of blessing. Joseph, you remember Joseph, the story of Joseph. He was the youngest of all of his brothers. He uh, was kind of alienated from his brothers because they thought he was a spoiled, rotten little brat. That he was daddy's favorite. And so they didn't want him getting all daddy's attention, so they sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. 
God worked all things together for good in his life and for the nation of Israel and for the people of Israel. As he would uh, become second command, God would give him a vision about a drought that was coming where people would perish and die because of a lack of provision. But God used Joseph to create a storehouse of provision. It was in that that his brothers would eventually, years later, not knowing Joseph was alive or Joseph was even in Egypt, thinking he was probably dead by now or a servant somewhere in a distant land, not knowing he was the one in charge in Egypt, they come for provision. And it's in that reunion that God would provide even for his stubborn, rebellious brothers, and they would live. But, but Israel would settle in Egypt. They'd live there for 400 years, many generations. And they would wake up at a certain point, and we would find Israel, the father to this nation, about to die. He's old, and he can't see. He's been restored in relationship. He thought he had lost his son Joseph, and, and through this drought, and through this season, and this reunion, they're brought back together as a family. Well, at the end of his life, Israel calls for Joseph and for his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And he says, I want you to bring your boys to me. He said, I lost you. All of my adult life, I lost you, and your two sons are now my sons. They will replace what I lost through you. Bring me your sons so I might bless them. As you read through the story, we find that Joseph did as his father asked. He brought him before Israel for his daddy to bless Ephraim and Manasseh. As Joseph appeared before his daddy, he held out Manasseh in his left hand so he would be in front of his father's right hand. See, Manasseh was the firstborn, and in that culture, the firstborn got the first blessing, the greatest blessing. The other children were blessed, but the firstborn had the biggest blessing. And so Joseph holds out Manasseh in his left hand so that his father's right hand can be placed on him. He holds Ephraim out in his right hand for his dad's left hand to give the second blessing. And as he's holding his two children, his father Israel goes to reach for those children to bless them and you know what he does he crosses his hands his right hand goes from Manasseh to Ephraim and Joseph says daddy daddy whoa you got it wrong you messed up dad I know you're senile how many of you think no don't I'm not even going to ask how many of you think your parents are senile right now but he thinks he's got to help his daddy out because his daddy isn't seeing it his daddy doesn't get it but here's the deal his dad doesn't have to see with his eyes he's seeing with the heart and God has told him that he is to bless Ephraim, the youngest. It wasn't normal. And yet that's what he does. If you go through and you read the rest of the story, you'll find this unique blessing placed on Ephraim. All the way down and you get to verse 19. And Joseph's arguing, Daddy, you got it wrong. Daddy, you got it wrong. Look at verse 19. He says, I know my son. I know. He also will become a people. And he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he is. And his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them on that day, saying, So by you Israel will pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And so he put Ephraim in before Manasseh. As you go back and you look at that, here's what we find. We find that Ephraim was blessed by Israel. It was passed on. While it was supposed to go to Manasseh, it went to Ephraim. And yet, years and generations later, the sons of Ephraim, instead of walking in that blessing, they became a rebellious generation. You see, you can be blessed by God, but not live a blessed life. 
God has blessed us richly through Christ Jesus, but if we don't live in Christ Jesus, we don't experience the blessing. And somewhere along the way, one generation forgot to pass on the blessing. One generation quit living a blessed life, and now we find the sons of Ephraim, who were supposed to experience those blessings, now rebelling against God, and now they're under a curse. They had forgotten the God of their fathers and their forefathers. Let's go back to Psalm 78, verse 10, and let's see how we can keep from being that generation. That we might be a blessed generation and a blessed people, not a rebellious generation that does our own thing our own way. Verse 10. So Asaph sings a song over the people. And each verse is going to remind them of how and why they should have confidence in God and not the chaos of their rebellion. Look at verse 10. For they did not keep the covenant of God and they refused to walk in his law. They forgot his deeds, his miracles that he had shown them. Where does our confidence come from? It comes from seeing who God is, what he has done, but also experiencing him in our own journey, in our own story. I'm glad that he did miracles in the days of Moses, but I also want to experience the miracle-working power of God in my life today, don't you? It's either that or head for chaos. Verse 11, but they forgot his deeds, the miracles that he had shown them. So he performed wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt. He's going to give them a history lesson. He's going to go back and tell them what their daddies should have told them. And he's going to point them to why they should have confidence in God. I'm going to do the same today. Look at what he said. First thing. First verse. Verse 13. He divided the sea, and he caused them to pass through it, and he made the water stand up like a heap. The first thing that Asaph uh, sings about is God is our deliverance. God is our deliverance. He said, if you need a history lesson, go all the way back into the land of Egypt. Remember when our forefathers cried out to God for deliverance from the bondage of Pharaoh, how God delivered them, how they marched out boldly heading for the promised land. And as they were going to this promised land, they come against a Red Sea. They couldn't get through it. They couldn't get by it. And on, the other, on this side, on the land, here comes Pharaoh and his army. Certain destruction. They would be killed in that day. They would experience death and destruction. But God was their deliverer. And he said, do you remember the miracle of God, how he split the Red Sea wide open? He made the, 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 the sea waters come up like walls on each side and created a highway, a super pike pass for us to get over the other side in victory. Don't forget, God is the one who delivers. But if we settle for our own ways, instead of being more than conquerors, we find ourselves being defeated. Being defeated by doubt or discouragement, temptation. Instead of experiencing the victory that God provides, we find ourselves being defeated. We need to remember God who delivered Israel at the Red Sea is the same God who delivered you right now. No matter where you are, no matter how difficult your circumstance feels, God is your deliverer. He always has been. He has moved the mountain and he's moved the Red Sea, and I believe he can do it again. Do you? Back in verse 14. First verse, he's our deliverer. Second verse, he then led us with a cloud by day and by night with a light of fire. In the second verse, he says you can have confidence in God because not only is he your deliverer, but he's also your direction. He is the shepherd who will guide you and he will lead you by day and by night. 
We shouldn't just look to God for guidance when we're in trouble. When we got a Red Sea experience going on, how easy is it to go running to God then? But what if we ran to God every day, every night, all day long? What if we allowed the Lord to be our shepherd? Maybe we wouldn't find ourselves in so much trouble. But even when we do, even when we look to him to be our shepherd, there's still going to be Red Sea moments. How did they get to the Red Sea? God guided them there. God directed them there. And while they were in that circumstance under God's direction, they still found difficulties, but God was still leading. Every day you wake up, you have to determine who your shepherd will be. That's why God gave us Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, and he said, listen, you got one of two shepherds. You can lean on your own understanding, or you can lean on me. You can look to a way that seems right, that everybody else is doing, and and it just seems like the way to go. You can go there, chaos and destruction. Or you can have confidence in me as your shepherd. I can be your shepherd and you don't have to want, and I will lead you to green pastures and stiller waters, and I will, I will lay you down and provide for you everything you need, and I will make your path straight. You can have confidence in God as your deliverer. You can have confidence in God that he knows where he's taking you. You can place your confidence there, or you can place your confidence somewhere else. The sons of Ephraim said, man, that God was for our granddaddy and for our grandmas. He won't be our God. We'll be our own God. We have bows and we have arrows. We're mighty. We're, a large, we're the blessed people of Ephraim. And they quit looking to the God of blessing, and they looked to their own stuff. Doesn't that sound like America today? Doesn't that sound like the problem we inherit? See, the problem for America today is we have everything, everything but God. We're going to see that he was pointing to a time when they were in a wilderness. They've left Egypt. They're heading for a promised land. But in that wilderness journey, they had nothing but God. And they were in a way better place than we are today. They had nothing but God. We have everything but God. Totally different perspective. And could it be that our nation has become like the sons of Ephraim? We've forgotten where our deliverance comes from. We have forgotten how we find God's direction instead of our own way and our own understanding. Verse 15, go back to verse 15. He continues on. Third verse. He's our deliverer. He's our direction. What else? Verse 15. And do you remember after he delivered us through the Red Sea? Do you remember as he directed us by day and night how God was also our source of water? Verse 15. He split the rocks in the wilderness. He gave them plenty to drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams from the rocks and made waters run down like rivers, yet they still continued to sin against him. Here's God continuing to provide, and here's God showing them, you're in a desert, and what do you need more than anything else in a desert? water there was none and so God speaks into that moment even though they were rebellious even though they were struggling even though they were doubting God God was still faithful and God became living water for them in the desert again we've talked about the woman at the well and Jesus reminding her she'd been drinking from a well like many do I need another relationship in my life to bring me completion to to bring me happiness and fulfillment how many people have drank from that well? Man, if I just had a 
prom date, if I just had a boyfriend or girl, if I just had a spouse, if I just had this, she'd gone from relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship to relationship, and the one she was with now was not her husband. Jesus said, as long as you keep drinking from the stuff of this world, you're always going to be thirsty. The desert cannot satisfy your soul. The things of this world, they may look good, they may even taste good for a season, but they are like the sands of the desert. They cannot quench your thirst. That's why Jesus said, there's other water. There's another well you can drink from. I am the living water. Even in the church today, there are people living in a desert-like condition. They have the blessings of God, they're in Christ Jesus, but they continue to walk in the wilderness and try to drink from the wilderness, from the desert of this world, and they wonder why they're still thirsty, because you're drinking from the wrong source. Jesus said, let me be your living water. Everyone's thirsty, everyone's drinking. The question is, which well are you drinking from? Drop down to verse 18 in Psalm chapter 78, next verse. And in their heart, they put God to the test by asking for food that suited their taste. And they spoke against God and they said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Their next struggle in the journey was trusting God, a lack of confidence in God's provision. Could God provide not only water, but also our nourishment, also our food? They put God to the test, and they lost confidence. God can't feed me. God isn't what I need. I need something else. They complained against God, and they spoke out against God. Why? Because he wasn't delivering like Grubhub does. This is before Walmart. Before Amazon Prime that can have it on your doorstep the next day, but even better, in the next few minutes, you can, don't be dialing Grubhub right now. I don't want to see a delivery guy come through the back door, but he could. And we can have food, any food we want from any restaurant in this town, like this. God, who heard their cries, they're out in the wilderness. There is no Walmart. There is no fast food. They're in a desert. Two to three million of them. God fed them every day. He fed them with manna. It rained down from heaven every day, and it looked like angel food cake. It would pour down white like snow, and it was a provision that God gave every single day. They weren't good enough. They were blessed rotten. Blessed rotten. No, Lord, you don't get it. I called for a double beef, all beef patty with special sauce, lettuce, cheese. I need grilled onions on it. I need a sesame seed bun, and I want it now. No, you get manna. One good enough. And there are some people today who've tasted of the Lord in salvation, but are living blessed, rotten. God, that's not enough. God, I want it my way. I want it how I want it, and I want it now. God is the God of deliverance. God is the God of direction. He is our living water, and he is the source of our nourishment. And he provides for us all that we need, but we usually want something else. So what do you do when you're in your wilderness? What do you do when you're in a situation and you look around and you say, there's two to three million of us and there's no restaurants, there's no grocery store. God can't provide. What do you do? What do you do in your Red Sea experience. Do you quit? Do you doubt God? 
Do you drown in the, in the Red Sea? Do you fight back? What do you do? Let me give you something to write down. I want you to write this in your notes. And I think it's very profound. It's what God is teaching through this Psalm 78. You need to keep looking to what God has said until you see him do what he has said. Keep looking to what he has said until you see him do what he said he would do. Classic case in point, the Red Sea. There they are. We talked about it earlier in the psalm, in the song. Talked about how God split the Red Sea open. Well, wait a minute, back up. Before they ever saw the Red Sea open up, they saw the enemy crashing in. As they look out and they follow God all the way to this Red Sea, they're now trapped, and here comes uh, Pharaoh in all of his anger and all of his fury. They know they have less than 24 hours to live. So what do you do when you have a Red Sea experience? What do you do if you're in the wilderness with two or three million people and there's no grocery store? What do you do? That's the wrong question. What can he do? But we go back to what we can do and how we can figure it out, and we begin to doubt God. And so what do we do? We put a committee together, right? So they put a strategic team together. Let's figure out how to get victory at the Red Sea. They put a committee together, and they come to Moses and said, Moses, what are we going to do? And Moses says, guys, man, I don't know what to do this time. Let me go ask God. And so Moses goes out, and he meets with God, and God sits down with Moses, and he puts together a game plan, just like a head coach of a football team. And he passes on to him a wishbone formation. Some of you will get that later on, all right? But he's got the playbook. And he brings it back to his people. And he says, guys, God has given us a game plan for victory. And they're all right, all right, what do we do? And all the soldiers marched up the front to get their marching orders. And Moses said, whoa, wait, slow down. Here's the game plan. Okay, Moses, what do we do? What do we do? Tell us, tell us, and we'll do it. God said to do nothing. Excuse me? Nothing? Now, he wasn't saying to do nothing. He was actually telling them to do something pretty powerful. You see, God said, tell the people to cease striving, and they will know that I am God. What it means to cease striving doesn't mean you don't do anything. What it means is this. You place your complete confidence in God, what he has said, until you see him do what he said he would do. And in that moment, the hardest thing they've ever done was to trust God. God, you'll provide. God, you be our deliverance. God, you do what we can't do. Man, it's so tempting to pick up our spears, to pick up our shields, to try to be strong for God, to try to fight our way through it when there are times that we just need to find our confidence in God and God alone. And God showed up. There have been times that God has moved the mountains. There's times that God has split the Red Sea. And what he did all the way back then I believe I'll see him do it again. I believe he will do it in our day, in our time, and I don't know what your mountain is. I'm not sure what your Red Sea is, but I know who your God is. And so as they were struggling with that, as they were dealing with this issue, take a look again at verse 19. They spoke against God and they said, watch this, underline that phrase, can God. Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Do you see how the enemy snuck in and with the circumstances and the situations caused them to doubt if God can? There's some people today that are struggling with that. Can God heal our marriage? 
Can God bring our teenager back under, uh, out of that heart of rebellion? Can God give me the strength I need in this moment? Can God deliver me from my addiction? Can God get me through this temptation? Can God forgive me? Better yet, can God save me? All these questions, can God, is a lack of confidence in who God is, what God has done, and what you'll let him do moving forward. As I said earlier, God proved that he could. He parted Red Seas. He poured down manna from heaven. Listen to this out of Exodus chapter 16. It says that the sons of Israel ate the manna for, listen to this, for 40 years. How long were they in the wilderness? Anybody know? 40 years. Every day. Every day. Even when they were sinning against God, speaking against God, struggling and going in wrong directions, God was still blessing. The question is, Will we receive those blessings? Will we place our confidence in God or will we rebel and experience the chaos of our day? Can God? Really? God already did. And God still can. Matter of fact, David would sing about it in Psalm 23. He said, even though I walk through the valley, the shadow of death, all of us have valleys. All of us have red seas. He said, I'll fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Listen to this. Listen to what he declared. You prepare a table for me, even in the presence of my enemies. A rebellious generation says, can God provide a table? What was the purpose of a table? What, what, what was David saying? My God shall provide a table for me in the, in, in the presence of my enemies. That table is where you came to eat. It's where you came to have the banquet. It's where you had all the provisions of the king and David said, I have everything, I am a blessed man. Even though I have enemies, even though I have this valley, a Red Sea experience, God still prepares the table. Sons of Ephraim said, can God really? In this wilderness? I don't think so. David said, God can. May God change our attitudes from can God to God can. And tonight when we gather back, and I hope you'll be back tonight, it's a special time as both services come together as one body. As we come to hear great testimonies of God's deliverance, you're going to hear a powerful story of God's deliverance tonight. We're going to worship the God and sing his praises like we're supposed to pass on from generation to generation. And then we're going to let God prepare the table. You remember the Last Supper? Jesus told his disciples, guys, the enemy's after you. The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. The enemy... The enemy is trying to destroy you. Be alert. Be aware. And the enemy was coming. The enemy is always coming. But even though you're surrounded by the enemy's minefields and the enemy's attacks, the Lord still prepares a table, a place of fellowship, a place of nourishment for him to give you all you need to be your living water and your bread of life. Tonight we get to come back and we get to experience that table in a unique and fresh way. I invite you to be here tonight at 5 o'clock. But as we finish up Psalm 78, Asaph was trying to remind the sons of Ephraim and a rebellious generation, listen, you need to return your confidence to God, the one who delivers, the one who directs, the one who is your living water, the one who is your table uh, prepare, the one who gives you your nourishment. Find confidence in God. I take you back in your history lesson and go back to Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had a confidence in God. 
They had a wicked ruler that was about to throw them in a fire, and they said, it doesn't matter what you do to us. Our confidence is in God. He can deliver us. Whether he does or not, we know he can. I can take you back to David's confidence, and he came up against a giant. His confidence wasn't in his slingshot and in his five stones. His confidence as he came against a giant, he said, my God shall deliver you into my hand. His confidence was in God, his deliverer. I take you back to Paul's confidence when he said, I'm confident of this very thing, that the God who saved us and began a good work in us, my God is going to keep me and my God is going to perfect me and he's going to do the same for you. Paul's confidence had also said, I'm confident that my God shall supply every one of your needs according to his riches and glory. Those who had confidence in God experienced the blessing of God. Those who doubted God experienced chaos. I close with this story. It's found in Mark 9. You can put it in your notes. Just write it down. Jesus, who came to prepare the table for us in the presence of our enemy by laying down his life and becoming the sacrificial lamb, walked into a town, and there was a man who brought a boy to him who was in convulsions and demon-possessed. He cried out to the Lord, asking for help. And when he brought his boy to him he declared from his whole childhood he has been tormented and thrown into the fire and even in the water this demon trying to kill him listen to what he said but Jesus if you can if you can help us he's needing help he wanted help but he doesn't have the confidence He's still questioning if Jesus really is who he's heard he has been. He's heard the stories, what he's done for others. But what can God do for me? If you can. That's where you are today. Oh, God seems to love everybody else but me. And if he can do it for them, I wonder, can he do it for me? Jesus responded to this father and he said to him, Did I hear you right? If you can. And then Jesus said something very profound. And he gave this man the confidence he needed. He said, know this. All things are possible for the one who believes. All things. And the father responded and he said, I do believe. He went from can God to I believe God can. But then he said this, Jesus, help my unbelief. That's real. Because we all have situations that doctors can't fix, that government can't fix, that you can't fix. But God can. Let's pray about it. With every head bowed and every eye closed. That's a heavy song, huh? Can God? Can God forgive me? Can God save me? Can God... Fill in the blank. Are you living in the can God camp? Or do you need to cry out and say, God, help my unbelief? I believe you can. God, help my unbelief. Maybe that's your prayer right now. And you need to pray over those things. Then you let that be your response.